Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Wendy Suzuki is a professor of neuroscience and psychology in the Center for Neuroscience at NYU. She's a celebrated international authority on all things neuroplasticity and was recently named one of the 10 women changing the way we see the world by good housekeeping. And she's here today to discuss her must-read book titled Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Wendy, welcome. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. It's great to have you here. Anxiety is a big topic, and you start off your book, which is titled Good Anxiety, by by saying we live in an age of anxiety. Quote, 40 million or 18% of the American population suffer from one or several anxiety disorders, including panic disorder, PTSD, and general anxiety disorder. And you say these numbers don't even scratch the surface and that there are hundreds of millions across the globe who suffer from lower grade, non-clinical anxiety. And that you say that anxiety shows up in one form or another for 90% of the population. It just, wow. I know it's a hard number. It is a wow. So what's driving all of this in your opinion? Yeah. So that came from before the pandemic, that 90% of Americans raised their hands uh, and said, yeah, I, I, I experience anxiety during the day. So you have to imagine that it's even more than 90%. Everybody's experiencing anxiety, not necessarily the clinical level of anxiety, but what I call everyday anxiety. And I think the reason for that started be- even before the pandemic because there are so many triggers that we have for scary things. The news cycle we've gone through and we're still going through political upheavals. Even the weather report can be anxiety provoking, social media uh, anxiety provoking. And that's what I noticed when I set about to choose the topic of my second book, that everybody was seeming more anxious. My students, my colleagues, at that time, to tell you the truth, I was an anxiety denier. I'm like, yeah, anxiety is a problem for others. Let, let me look at this from a neuroscientific perspective. And I got into it and 90% of people were doing it. And I realized, oh my God, I have so much anxiety. And if you read the book, you see I've laid out all of my very common anxieties in the book, but I learned how much I was blocking my own anxieties while writing this book. Can you distinguish between that everyday anxiety that basically the whole population experiences versus anxiety disorder? Yeah. So, I mean, the best way that I describe it is that clinical levels of anxiety, those five different categories that you mentioned just a few minutes ago, are really debilitating mental conditions that, that prevent you from working. They prevent you from having relationships. And just like if you had a broken leg, you need medical assistance to, to, to be able to kind of go on for your life. It, it is debilitating. And then below that is, is a whole range from almost debilitating <laughs> to I get nervous because I have to go on the subway today, for example. So, or I get anxious going on the subway if I see people without masks on. So it's really, it's a huge range of anxiety, but I, I think there's no question that everybody's anxiety levels have gone up with the extra kind of pressure of COVID and the uncertainty surrounding COVID, the COVID pandemic. 
Is there, it seems like there's potentially a fine line with the everyday anxiety that we all experience versus crossing over to a disorder. Could you give me an example of uh, an everyday anxiety, which could potentially cross over to disorder? Like maybe it's the example you use on the subway, like when does it become, oh, I'm anxious about getting on the subway right? versus this is becoming problematic. Now I'm yeah. crossing over to a disorder potentially. Like how do we know when is this a little inconvenient versus right. this is maybe something I need real help? Yeah, with? I think one useful way to think about it is that when it feels like uh kind of a, just a chain around your neck that going on the subway is like, oh, I hate it. I just have to grin and bear it. There's no way out of it, but I'll do it. I'll do it. And it's just uncomfortable. And it's, it, it wears on you every single day. That is part of everyday anxiety. If it's so bad that you can't get on the subway and you stop being able to, you know, use that or other forms of public transportation, because it causes so much anxiety that you can't interact with it at all. That's kind of the debilitation level. So essentially you start rearranging your life. Yeah. To some yeah. degree. You, you stop being able to participate in your life in, in the ways that you're used to because of this anxiety that comes up. So I, the title of your book is good, good anxiety. I remember seeing the title. I said, Oh, wow, this is interesting. So <laughs> let's go there. What yeah. type of anxiety is good and yeah. why is it good? Yeah. So I titled the book, Good Anxiety, because at its core, evolutionarily, anxiety and the underlying physiological stress response that comes with it, that butterflies in your stomach, increased heart rate, that evolved in our species to protect us. And it was in, in fact, an essential form of protection for us that still works today. So the best way to think about this is imagine you're, you're a woman 2.5 million years ago with a young child that was just born and you're gathering food and you hear a twig crack. And it could be a lion or a tiger that's about to eat you. And so first you're, you're scared, you have anxiety because of this, the sound that could indicate a potential predator, but that immediately activates this physiological stress response that gets you ready to fight or run away, the fight or flight response. It's underlied by our sympathetic nervous system. And it is protection from that. If we just said, oh, well, whatever, twig, crack, whatever, you're going to die. So, and it works that way today. I translate that to, I pay attention on the street for the crazy drivers in New York. Sometimes you want to be able to jump out of the way if there's one that that's, that's crazy. And, or actually probably a better example is the bikers that don't look where they're going and you, you want to jump away. I've had to jump away more for bikers than for taxis, but same kind of protection. It was essential, was and is essential. It was developed for protection. I know you're saying... I could see it in your face, like I'm not feeling protected by my anxiety. Like, so, so did it disappear, that protective element? And the answer is no, it's still there to protect us. But the problem is that the volume on our anxiety and the number of things that, that trigger it has gone so high that it's lost that protective aspect. It's too much of any good thing 
even a good thing is bad. And so we've lost that protective aspect. So the first step is to understand, oh, actually, it is supposed to be protective. But to try and get back to that protective, productive element of anxiety, we first need to learn how to turn it down so that we're not evoked as much by all these things that are around us. So so that's a big part of the book, turning the volume on anxiety down. And it's lots of tools. There's a toolbox in there so that everybody, whatever taste you have, can find, including science-based approaches that really help us turn the volume down on our anxiety. How do we cope? How do we better manage? Yeah. How do we get comfortable with or better leverage, turn the turn our anxiety into good. So how, how do you think about that, whether it's coping, managing, getting comfortable with, and, yeah. and ultimately leveraging this anxiety the, that is part of our everyday life? The bikers driving nuts, by the way, yes. also too. Yeah. Especially the, the, these electric bikes, you can't oh. see, you can't hear them yeah, and they go down silent. the wrong way yeah, on one-way streets and, they're going and on sidewalks. Past. Oh my God, so, totally. I, I don't know if this is a problem just in New York City or other cities, but like I've almost gotten hit a couple times and it's wow it's a, it scares the hell out of me so there's my anxiety the, yeah. the bikers the <laughs> electric too. bikers going the wrong way on yes. sidewalks and one-way streets are driving my anxiety otherwise i'm not really an anxious person i'm, I'm yes. blessed so back to coping managing getting comfortable with or ultimately turning turning or leveraging anxiety into something we is a force for good yeah okay so here are my steps step one turn the volume down on your anxiety so that it's not everything that's triggering you. And my top two tools to do that are tool number one, deep breathing. So if you are going into anxiety, maybe you're in an anxiety attack, you know, you're on the subway and there's five people on your car with no mask on, breathe deeply. And I know you've heard this before, But here's the science, the neuroscience element that I'm going to add. Why does this work? It's not an old wives tale. In fact, you are activating a particular part of our nervous system that was evolved to counteract that fight or flight part of our nervous system. So fight or flight is called the sympathetic nervous system. This part of the nervous system that's activated by deep breathing is called the parasympathetic nervous system or the rest and digest part of the nervous system. It's basically the de-stressing part of the nervous system that slows your heart rate down, slows your respiration, and brings blood from your muscles towards your digestive and reproductive organs. Now, I can't think about bringing blood back to my digestive and reproductive organs, but I can consciously breathe slowly in, hold it, breathe slowly out. And that helps activate that de-stressing part of your nervous system. And I love it because it works even in the middle of a anxiety-provoking conversation. You might, if you're the one provoking my anxiety, you're talking, I'm just breathing deeply, just calming myself down. Something you can do with your kids, teach them to do it, not in an anxiety-provoking situation and instruct them. If it gets anxiety, if you get anxiety in class, sit there, just breathe deep. Nobody can tell you're doing it. And it's a wonderful way to calm yourself down. So that's the first go-to approach. Activate your parasympathetic system by breathing. And second is move your body. So for many years in my lab, I've studied the effects of physical activity on the brain. 
And more recently, I've studied different forms of meditation, breath work, and exercise. And our studies and other studies show that even a single bout of exercise, you go out for a walk, walk around your dining room table, walk up and down the stairs, will decrease anxiety and depression levels because every time you move your body, you are releasing dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline in your brain. I like to say it's like giving your brain a bubble bath of fantastic neurochemicals that make you feel better. And so that also works. Maybe you can't take a walk in the middle of an anxiety provoking uh, conversation, but you can walk to that conversation, get yourself nice and calm, get all those good neurotransmitters going so that you go in with a good attitude and a non-anxious attitude. So that's step one. And those are just two tools out of many that I talk about in the book. So the next step after turning down the volume is tune in to those uncomfortable emotions that anxiety brings up. This book does not say, I'm gonna get rid of all of your anxiety. It's just gonna go away. No, I say that anxiety is a real thing. It comes with uncomfortable emotions. We're gonna feel it, but we just wanna use it so it's more helpful for us. And so one of the reasons you ask, why is anxiety good? Is that if you turn the volume down so that you can tune in to your own uncomfortable emotions, um, you learn what those emotions are telling you. What wisdom do they have? What are they telling you about your values that maybe you didn't recognize because you were too busy trying to just get rid of it? Oh, I don't wanna, I just wanna ignore it. There's a lot of value and information in those uncomfortable emotions. I think we get in the, in the mode of, well, I just wanna be happy. I just wanna be in the happy part of my emotions. But we have this beautiful cavalcade of human emotions. They're all useful for something. And I've come to realize while writing this book that those uncomfortable ones are some of the most informative. So that's another very powerful way that anxiety can be good to tell you about, teach you about yourself. So you're talking about the uncomfortable ones, which leads me to my next question. As you refer to it in the book, the, the catch 22 of stress and resilience. Mm. Yes. Okay, so the catch-22 of stress and resilience. So everybody wants to be resilient and stress can either kind of circle you down into more stress and more anxiety, or it can help like leverage you up into higher levels of resilience. And my approach for that to go in the leveraging up direction really focuses on mindset and the mindset you bring into your stress and anxiety. So, so the idea is that if you approach your stress and anxiety situations with a uh, curious mindset, with a creative mindset and approach each situation as an opportunity to explore new ways to address it, new ways to learn about yourself, new ways to make that conversation with that really difficult person, maybe just a little bit better. That is a wonderful way to make every single anxiety provoking situation, because it's still gonna 
provoke some anxiety and sometimes it'll be a bad conversation, but approaching it with new creative ways and thinking about it, not again, not as a weight around your neck, but as an opportunity to, to try and improve your approach to it. That can build resilience every single time. In science, we call it stress inoculation. If you give experimental subjects like a way out, a way to make it better, a way to do it differently, they tend to develop resilience. But if you just do, if you don't give them uh, um, any opportunity to do anything but just, just grin and bear it, that's when they start having the opposite of resilience. When you talk about mindset and resilience, I, I think of how people react to certain situations that are terrible. And, and you see this, Gladwell, I remember, talked about this in one of his books where people lost a parent earlier, early in life. And he talked yeah. about this, I think, with presidents. And so on one hand, you have people who lost a parent early in life. It was very traumatic went on to do incredible things. And then on the other hand, you had people who just completely crumbled. Yeah. And there are lots of traumatic events we, we all experience, some more right. traumatic than others. We're, we're yeah. all not created equal there and, mm -hmm. and life happens. I'm curious, what makes someone resilient while, if you take two people and the same event mm -hmm. happens to them, yeah. what makes one person resilient and the other person crumble? Yeah, that's a really deep question um, <laughs> that I'm not sure I know the answer to. But what I will say is that that experience of grief actually did come in the writing of this book. And I think that, in fact, it's the formative event of why this book ended up how it was. So I already told you that, you know, I was noticing anxiety. I, I thought, I didn't have any anxiety until I started, you know, writing about it. It's like, oh, I have a lot of anxiety. But then I experienced a, a, a tragedy in my own life. My my father, who and this was when I was in my late forties, early fifties, passed away. He had dementia. He was in his eighties, so it wasn't that surprising. But three months later, my younger brother also had an unexpected heart attack and passed away. So it it was the most difficult moment of my whole life, having to deal with the loss of my father and my brother. And this is not anxiety. This is pure grief, plain and simple. And I was not a young child. I was in my 50s. I was a full adult, but it was so hard. And I used all the approaches that I was, you know, writing about and that I had studied the effects of exercise, meditation, reaching out to friends. I did all of that. And it was still hard. But I came out of it with a new appreciation of the value of those uncomfortable emotions. And I never would have had that if, if I didn't experience this. And it changed the book in the following way. So I remember one day I was recovering from the losses and I was working out and the trainer said, in the context of working out and, and pushing yourself, do more weights. She said, with great pain comes great wisdom. And I thought, oh my God, that's what I'm experiencing which is dealing with these emotions of around grief, that it was the biggest pain that I've ever felt in my whole life. But there is wisdom that comes with, there's a wisdom of gratitude for being here. There's the wisdom of the gratitude that I, I extend to the people that are still here, that 
I didn't get to extend as much as I would have wanted to, to my father and brother who's already passed. And because of that realization, I thought, well, anxiety is dealing with difficult emotions, not the same emotion, not grief, but difficult emotions. Fear is very difficult to deal with, worry, anger. And I asked myself, well, what wisdom could come out of those emotions? And that turned into the gifts or superpowers in, in the middle part of the book, the six gifts or superpowers. I think I needed gifts and superpowers in my life when I was writing this book. And like, I was determined there's going to be some good gifts here. And I would have dropped it if it wasn't true. But I, I really did realize that, that in thinking about it in this mindset with the, it's really about the power of those uncomfortable emotions that we all just want to just not even feel. We don't want to go into them. I'd rather ignore them as I did because I was an anxiety denier. And so all of that came together to create these gifts of anxiety, which is really why I say anxiety is good. Well, well thank you for sharing that. And you, know, you mentioned gratitude. Yeah. What role does gratitude play? Yeah, I think gratitude is so essential for our lives. I feel like I've been learning how to use gratitude in more and more profound ways in my life as I get older. And so one of the profound ways that I will share with all of the listeners and the readers of the book is what if you could have gratitude for your anxiety? What if you can be grateful for that human emotion that can protect us, that is an energy source for us and can teach us about ourselves. That's, I, I say that the most surprising thing that I learned when I wrote this book is that I, I found myself making friends with my own anxiety because I realized it, it wasn't something just to ignore. I mean, I was like, I'm just the happy one. I'm, I don't have any anxiety. I'm always happy and energetic. But if you read the book, you'll read about all my anxieties that I've had all of my life and they're still there. They'll be there for the rest of my life. And what I learned in writing the book and going through the research and doing the process was that I can learn a lot more from these uncomfortable emotions, from my fear, from my anger, which I especially like to ignore. And, and if I do that, anxiety becomes my friend. And I can be grateful for my anxiety. So that's one of the kind of promises of the book that, that I've tried to lead people through this path of turning down the volume, looking in, and then opening the door to making friends with your own anxiety. You've talked a lot about lifestyle, whether it's gratitude, exercise, yeah. breath work. I'm curious if we're approaching you know, 100%, almost 100% of the population with some form of low-grade anxiety. Yeah. How much of it do you think, how much of the population do you think could address that low-grade anxiety in a way that's productive with just lifestyle? I think 100%. I think wow. 100% could affect their low-grade anxiety or everyday anxiety. Some everyday anxiety is more than low-grade. It's like medium to high-grade, but just not clinical. There's a huge spectrum there. And I'm optimistic that that of that 
percent that I said boldly two seconds ago, because <laughs> I've I've studied something called brain plasticity for my entire neuroscience career. Brain plasticity is the understanding that our brain, one of the most spectacular and amazing things that the human brain can do is adapt to its environment. You give it a beneficial environment with exercise, great sleep, great food, regular meditation, not too much stress, lots of people, lots of great social interaction, which the human brain loves. And it will grow and it will become very healthy. But by contrast, there's also negative brain plasticity, which comes on with chronic stress, chronic anxiety, PTSD will shrink your people with PTSD, long-term PTSD have um, smaller brains because their brain cells have died because of high levels of cortisol in their blood that is known to kill brain cells. So do I think that things like regular exercise, meditation, sleep can affect 100% of people's um, everyday anxiety? Yes, absolutely. Wow. On a personal level, which practice have you experienced the the best uh, ROI, if you will? Is it breath mm. work or is it something else? Or I love the startup approach to anxiety treatments. That's great. Okay, what is the best ROI? Well, I say the best ROI will depend on what you do. It might be, it really might be meditation. But if you're never going to meditate, then it's not going to help you. And so that's why I tried to fill the book with a wide range of tools that can help because I know that I'm not going to force everybody to meditate today, but exercise also helps. Good sleep patterns also help. Social interactions also help. Bringing more laughter into your life also help. All of these things are little ways that you can come to that. What do we know the most about scientifically that will lead to uh, lower levels of anxiety? I would say that the bulk of the neuroscience research supports physical activity. That is specifically a something that can immediate and immediately and in the long term decrease your anxiety levels and your stress levels. Is there a preferred type of physical activity? Is it high intensity interval training? Mm -hmm. Is it walking in nature? Is yeah. it running? Does it vary? What is the, I'm curious what does science say? Yeah. So science has the most to say about aerobic activity. That is physical activity that increases your heart rate. That is very good for uh, both mood and cognitive functions like focus and attention and can even, and this is one of the most kind of wow, another wow thing in the good sense. That is physical activity, aerobic activity can literally grow new brain cells in a structure called the hippocampus, critical for long-term memory. And so personally, I'm a neuroscience that studies exercise. That is my number one motivator that gets me up in the morning, that gets me to exercise every morning because I want the biggest, fattest, fluffiest hippocampus that I can have because it's very susceptible to aging and Alzheimer's disease. And I have Alzheimer's disease in my family. So I know very well I'm not going to reverse Alzheimer's if I have it in my genes, but I want the biggest, fattest hippocampus that I can get right now when I'm physically able to, to work out and get my heart rate up so that it'll last 
as long as long as possible. So there's your ROI. Start moving your body, get your heart rate up so that you increase the size and the strength of your hippocampus and prefrontal cortex so that you end life with a strong brain. And that is a wonderful thing. I love that you said, wow. So building off of wow, what was yeah. another wow when you were researching the book where you said, wow, this study or this research is worthy of a wow? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a, I'll tell you a wow. And this wow came from a, a more casual experiment, but it was a real world experiment specifically about anxiety and exercise. And I did it almost exactly a year ago which was right before the start of the fall 2020 semester at NYU. So remember, that was the weird semester. Everybody suddenly had to go online. Nobody knew what was going to happen. It was no so weird to be there. And I was invited to give a welcome talk to 30 incoming freshmen at NYU who wanted their NYU experience, but there they were at their kitchen tables watching a professor on Zoom. And so I gave them a little 10 minute primer on the transformative effects of exercise on the brain. But then I sent them off to do a two minute anxiety survey, a clinically validated anxiety survey. Then they came back to the Zoom meeting. We all stood up and we all did 10 minutes of aerobic exercise. I happen to be a certified exercise instructor as well. So we did this, it was a little bit of a surprise. It's like, oh, a little bit weird, but you know, turn your camera off if you don't wanna be on camera. I don't care, just move your body for 10 minutes. And then I sent them back to do the anxiety questionnaire again. What I found was before the workout, these 30 students were at an anxiety level that was just shy of clinically anxious, very high anxiety levels, which was consistent with all the reports out there. Students were very anxious at the beginning of that 2020 fall semester. 10 minutes of workout that we did ourselves. It was a form of workout where I, it's a combination of physical movements from kickbox and dance and yoga and martial arts. And I we combine it with positive spoken affirmations. So when you're punching back and forth, you say, I am strong now. And every move has a different affirmation. It's called intensati. I didn't, I didn't yeah, develop Patricia, it. Patricia Moreno. Patricia Moreno developed it. Yes. I, yeah. Wow. So from the past. I am a certified intensity instructor. I taught it for seven years at NYU and we did this together with these students. So what happens after 10 minutes of intensity? Anxiety levels went down 15 points and we put the class, I, we together with our group exercise, put the class into normal anxiety range. So I, we took them from almost clinically anxious to normal anxiety levels. And I went, wow. I, did, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen. So that was another. I, I love how the PhD neuroscientist is going a little new agey on us. And so, <laughs> I, so can you talk a little, well, let's talk about affirmations for a moment. What mm -hmm. does the science say? Like, that's just not any old form of aerobic exercise. That's pretty specific where there are affirmations. What, is, what does the science say there? Okay, or is so the science not there? The, the science isn't there. Well, so so first of all, let me say that I'm not the only one to look at the effects of some sort of aerobic exercise on anxiety levels. I just did it in this classroom in a real world, world situation when students were really anxious. So it was kind of a unique situation. Many other studies have shown that people that are anxious can decrease their anxiety with aerobic exercise. But I, as you point out, I used a particular form of uh, exercise, intensity that combines physical movements with affirmations. 
Now, I've looked at this because I am a neuroscientist and I'm an intense Latte instructor. We do know that positive spoken words, positive affirmations can improve mood relative to non-positive reading something neutral. So they did a, a, a well-designed, randomly controlled experiment and positive affirmations improve mood. Great. That's not intensati, but we know that positive words can improve mood. And we also know that exercise improves mood and many other cognitive functions. And so put it together in intensati, and that suggests that we get a particularly good mood boost because we're getting the affirmation boost and the exercise boost, and we're getting cognitive uh, improvements as well with, with intensati. I love it. I'm gonna, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse on this one, but it, it feels like when you're talking about movement and affirmations being great for us, I yeah. think, oh man, technology, the news, social media must be the worst thing ever if we're yes. just sitting on our couch, scrolling our feed. And right. I know Facebook's been brutalized this week and the, the cover of the Wall Street Journal every day for what's happening. It's insane. It's terrible. But yeah, what does neuroscience say about sitting on a couch, doom scrolling on social media? Well, I think that many of the studies that they are citing in the Wall Street Journal and all these, all of these newspapers that are kind of thrashing Facebook, um, and in fact, it seems that their own internal research shows that social media scrolling, particularly for you know younger people and adolescents, young women, it's terrible. Be, yeah, it's it's got as a parent, we have two little girls. I'm just mm. I'm, they're they're four years old. They're not on social media. They're four uh, and two. But I'm just yeah. like as a parent of young. Know, this is just god awful. Yeah. So yes, I mean, I I think there is a growing data, more sociological data than neuroscience data, that it causes depression, it, it causes anxiety, and it's not good. I get around that by only liking certain things on my feed. So uh, I do a tea meditation, which is how I do my, my daily meditation, uh, which is meditation over the brewing and drinking of tea. And uh, you would be surprised at all of the different sites that show different teaware, teacups, teapots, and all these people that show these wonderful videos of, of tea being poured in a beautiful cup. And so if I only like those, I see a lot of that on my feet, which I find very relaxing. So, so I guess you stay off Twitter. <laughs> yes, I do stay off Twitter. <laughs> so you're talking about college students, and I, and I think of and I'm an entrepreneur, I think about this, it's not just students, it's performance and performance anxiety. Yeah. And in the book, you you go into performance anxiety and, and flow and more specifically how we can optimize for quote unquote flow. Could you elaborate on that one? Sure, sure. So in going through anxiety, I knew I wanted to talk about flow. And to tell you the truth, I've always been a little bit depressed by the definition of flow, because the classic definition is you're at your highest level of performance and it's only occasionally that you might hit this vaulted idea of flow and everything goes well. And, and then all the research showing that anxiety kills flow. So not only am I not yo-yo ma and, and being able to do this, but I have anxiety as I found writing my book on anxiety. And so I tried to redefine flow to make it more palatable and more useful 
for all of us that have anxiety. And so I came up with the um, idea of microflow. So microflow was discovered on a day that I went to a yoga class and got through the yoga class, did well, laying there in Shavasana, corpse pose. And I'm like, I am doing this pose so well. Like <laughs> nobody can do this pose better than I am doing this pose. I'm flowing in Shavasana right now. Why not? And it only lasted two minutes because they don't give you nearly enough time in Shavasana ever. And so I thought, oh my God, this is great. What if I applied this approach? It's like a minute, 30 seconds, whatever. Something that you do well. Maybe we can tweak the definition of flow. And so that was my kind of foundational definition of micro flow. But then I was like, oh, the green smoothie that I make for myself every morning for breakfast, that is delicious. I'm really good at making that. That, that is a moment of flow. And But then I thought, okay, well, that's not really specific for people with anxiety because these gifts were, are supposed to be specific for people with anxiety. It's like why anxiety is good. And then I thought, aha, the other kind of psychological principle that is woven through the book is a principle of the negative contrast effect. So the negative contrast effect says that if you experience something really bad, like a really bad day, then that wonderful person that gives you their umbrella because you don't have one and it's raining feels even better because you had such a bad day. And that's what makes microflow a particular gift for people with anxiety, because anxiety gives you those uncomfortable negative feelings of anxiety, which is what makes those moments of microflow even sweeter. And so it becomes a particular gift or superpower for those of us that have anxiety. Interesting. So. What does a neuroscientist put in her smoothie? Oh, well, okay. It's banana, spinach, celery, uh, green apple, ice, and a little bit of water. Five ingredients. I got it from Martha Stewart, but she had uh, <laughs> things that uh, I think I tweaked a little bit. Um, the original green goddess. <laughs> yes. She was way ahead of her time. Yeah. Uh, then had a little bit of a detour, but we won't go into that. So... In closing, I'm curious, what science or research are you paying attention to you think is interesting? Where do you think this conversation is going to be a year or so from now? Yeah. So I'll tell you what I'm interested in doing in my own research, which is I have turned towards the very, very practical in neuroscience, which for me means, okay, let's, let's look at NYU students. I have hundreds of them around me at NYU. What is the minimum, most powerful activity that they can do to decrease their very high levels of anxiety? So what is that ROI? So I'm asking your ROI question, but in a scientific uh, approach. And we are literally comparing 10 minutes of 10 minutes of walking, 10 minutes of napping, 10 minutes of podcast listening. And the control is doing your homework, which is typical like school activity. And we also have a, a great condition of very, which looks to be quite powerful, mindful conversation. So mindful conversation is a conversation with one of my trained undergraduates who works in the lab. And it's just a conversation where my undergraduate is trained to listen to you deeply. And the topic is your last most favorite vacation. 
a neutral topic, but one that can bring up good memories. But, but what we've gotten feedback on is like, oh my God, it was so nice to have a conversation where somebody really listened to me and asked questions about, about this experience that I found useful. And it is anxiety decreasing. So we're comparing 10 minute activities, five minute activities, and trying to find kind of that college student, perfect, short, effective, uh, significant decrease in anxiety levels. And so that's, fa- that's fascinating. I-, I think the vacation question, could, could we, I think we can, we should give our audience a little bit of homework. Okay. Uh, so what is that? What is that? look like if you're if if someone wants to engage and say to their their friend their partner their significant other just anyone yeah wants to engage like what does that look like talk about favorite vacation what does that look like i love that i love that it's even easier to do it with somebody that because of course all of these are happening with strangers my my students don't know the people that sign up for the studies so if it's somebody that and you choose the topic of vacation it's just you're only both of your instructions is to really be present, listen deeply, and be curious and ask questions and give a time limit. So our time limit is 10 minutes. Maybe you'll want 15 or 20 minutes to get through one person's whole vacation and another person's whole vacation. Favorite story from a vacation. But it really makes a difference. And you start to realize how many superficial conversations like, okay, I need to get this from you. So let me just do that. I don't really care what you're going to tell me, but I just need this from you. And it's such a different feel, um, especially if you can do it live, because all of these conversations happened last year during our research year, which were all virtual. It still worked. It still had an effect on the student because listening, it it still happens over Zoom (laughs) sometimes. What was your favorite vacation? Why was it your favorite? What was the food like? Yeah. What was the experience like? Exactly. What was just kind of really drill down into yeah. that? They've, and it's such a great topic too, because I think a lot of people, whether they haven't gone on vacation yet or just went, people didn't. It's a lot of people are thinking about vacation. Yes. Yeah. Very evocative. Very evocative <laughs> topic. I love it. Well, Wendy, we love the book. Uh, Good anxiety. Thank you so much. Thank you. Fun conversation. 